When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Terrace Scottish Football Podcast. My name is Joel Sked and I'm delighted to have Hibs' first ever sporting director as a guest, Graham Maffey. How's it going, Graham? Thanks for coming on. Well, Joel, no, it's great to be here. Thanks a lot for having me. No problem, no problem. So we've got a, a few topics we're going to talk about, but first, could you give the listeners who might not know uh, much about yourself a bit of background on your career and how, your, how you found yourself in your current role at Easter Road? Sure. Um, I don't know how far back you want me to go on that one, but um, on leaving school at, at 16, I, I tried my best, as, as most young guys would want to do, to, to be a professional player. Um, I went, I was down at Coventry City uh, for 18 months, spent a wee while um, floating around a few teams on trial, um, and then found myself at, uh, at Bournemouth. Um, was down there for two years, working or certainly in the same changing room as, as guys like Eddie Howe and Jason Tindall and a lot of the guys that are there just now um, never quite made it into the first team. That was the year that they got relegated from League One to League Two, um, and then after that was a, a kind of non-illustrious. I think is the title I like to give my, my playing career. Um, mm-hmm. at Motherwell, Air United, uh, East Fife, and Albion Rovers. So I think at that point, when Albion Rovers were, were down the bottom end of the bottom division, and you're not getting a game, you probably realise that uh, it's time to find something else to try and, and pay the mortgage. So, um, so I went into uh, coaching. I did my, my coaching qualifications pretty young. Um, I played a bit of junior football at the time. I was probably around uh, 23. Uh, worked in Celtic's Community Foundation. Um, a lot of coaching in schools. Worked in the academy. Um, ended up, after a kind of period of time, managing some of those community projects. And then for four and a half years, worked within the first team scouting uh, department under John Park. Um, from there, I had two, two and a half years with the, the Scottish FA in a football development role before coming into Hibs initially as, as a head of player ID and recruitment. Um, it was George Craig that gave me that opportunity. And then in, in January, so this is now my it was 2014 I joined. Um, I had a full head of hair back in the day. I keep telling people that. So that gives an indication of what life's been like at Hibs over the last uh, six, six or so years. But, but no, that's been <laughs> easy then. So and, and obviously delighted to, to take the opportunity to, to come into this role in, in January. So it's been, uh, it's been an interesting start to that role, let me tell you. Yeah, it has been. It's, you, you, you've been in. You, you've seen quite a bit over your over the six, eight months or so. You've been in the role. Uh, there's been a change of manager. There's been certainly a recruitment drive. There was looking ahead to this summer with obviously the the new owner coming in, and then of course the current situation, the coronavirus pandemic. So as sporting director, there's uh, maybe not confusion, but some people are probably not as okay with what the role entails. So what, what does your role entail at Hibs as a sporting director? 
Yeah, it's a good question, Joan. You, you, you do get asked this quite a bit, and, and I guess my, my answer is quite, quite standard, I suppose. So I think um, a lot of clubs now, um, this has been something that's, that's happened in Europe and, and elsewhere for a long time, but certainly in the UK, I think more and more clubs are starting to um, probably look at increasing um, staffing structures uh, to support what happens on the pitch and probably understanding that when, whenever you bring in a head coach and a manager, um, you know, their, their key role is to actually help the team win games on a Saturday. And there are so many things that happen in, in the organising of a football club or a football department that it's pretty impossible for them to keep an eye on what might be a long-term process or a long-term structure while still focusing in on the very short-term uh, plans of taking training sessions, you know, doing their analysis with their players and trying to win games on a Saturday. So so I guess a lot of these roles have evolved. Um, and I suppose the thing to comment on is that they're all, they're all pretty different depending on what club you're with, depending on the individual and their skill sets. And I suppose depending on, on what the club's aspirations are for, for the role as well. So, um, I mean, even if I take George Craig was the, was the head of football operations. So that was a new title um, back in the, in, in the day when he took that, that role. So his skill set and mine might be similar in, in some aspects, but are probably pretty different um, broadly. So the way he approached the role and the type of things that were important to him and the things that he wanted to focus on would be different to, to myself. So um, so I guess that's probably the, the, the best summary I think I can give is, is really the role is to try and support a head coach and a manager to focus in on the things that are really important to help the team um, win matches on a Saturday. Um, so the sport director can then look at um, some of the maybe mid to long term planning of a club. Um, and even in the recruitment process of the head coach, you know, you'd mentioned that um, George was good with me in the, in the sense it was announced for, for me to kind of step into the role around about October and one of the first things that, that I had to do was to try and uh, transition a head coach so George let me and, and Leanne sort of drive that process and he, he he stepped back a little bit and allowed me to do it um, so even within that, that was a big part of the role is to, is to try and bring in a head coach or a manager who's um, who's, who's probably brought in against what you, you think the, 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 kind of, the way the club is and the way the club wants to go what the club wants to be um, so it's not just necessarily thinking well, somebody's doing particularly well in, in a certain club therefore we should bring him into Hibs and he'll do well here it's trying to match the type of the type of person that you want the type of coach that you want the type of manager that you want um, into the structure that you've got and, and, and obviously try and tick off the things that are important for the club um, so I don't mind touching on that you know with Jack specifically we wanted somebody who had the success of, of achieving things on the pitch which he has at a number of clubs um, we wanted somebody who had a history and, and a willingness to bring in young players because that's pretty important uh, for Hibs to try and do that more um, if we possibly can which he's done at, at various clubs we wanted somebody that's got a um, you know, a particular way of playing um, not necessarily somebody that was overly prescriptive about it but certainly somebody that wanted to be attack minded so these two things we saw in Jack over, over all the, the clubs he's been with, that he's not um, prescriptive to one or two set formations. He's very dynamic in the way he can set up his teams. But his teams are always attack-minded and, and they want to go and win games. So, um, you know, these things might sound really simple and really and really sort of straightforward. And I guess in, in a lot of ways they probably are. But it's actually the amount of work and, and thought and, and detail that's involved in getting to that point. Um, you know, again, that, that's probably one of the key parts of, of this role is to try and um, is to try and, and, and build build a case ultimately to go and take to the board and say, look, here are the here are the, the short list of people. Here's the reasons why. Um, you know, and again, working with um, Calvin Charlton in our analysis department was heavily involved in it to, to actually create a case using um, you know some background data on on the, the managers that we had in the short list to say here is the type of football that their teams play. 
Um, so again, every every time you're involved in this process, it's trying to add different layers to it. And and I guess that's a big part of this role is to try and continue to challenge all the departments to evolve and to try and, and, and get the club evolving in the way that it does things and the way that it thinks about doing things. Well, yes, sticking on the sticking on the Jack Ross appointment and the kind of appointment of managers as a whole, I remember reading about Southampton and they always, I was in the interview, I can't remember uh, who the, the person, um, the person at Southampton it was, but they talked about having almost a short list of managers, even when a manager was still in place, because they kind of expected him to move on, like the way that kind of Ronald Koeman did, Mauricio Pochettino did. Is this something that, uh, that Hibs, Hibs have done, or was it a case of as soon as Heckenbottom left, the process was then, right, we'll sit down, we'll discuss what we want, and then it's just, uh, it's kind of starts from there. No, I mean, I, I, I suppose it's a, that's a difficult question, Joe, because ultimately, you know, we're, we're talking about um, people being in a job. I suppose it's similar to, to players, you know, you, you always try and plan for every eventuality. Now, mm-hmm. we understand as a club, and I suppose that's where in this role that there's a big amount of, of strategy involved in it, but we always understand that the, the, the head coach position is the most transient position at a football club. You know, what we want and, and what we genuinely believe that we have at the minute is a really good fit. So Jack is a great fit for Hibs and, and we honestly believe that Hibs is a really good fit for Jack. So that being the case, what, what um, we believe Jack can do is, is come here and be successful and win games, which will make him attractive to other, other people um, in the market who might give him another opportunity at some point in, in the future that he wants to take. So, um, and that's the same as a player. So I guess, you know, when, when John McGinn was here um, and doing so well on the pitch, we always understood that his stock was going to be high and, and somebody was going to tempt him um, to go and play at another level and, and, and reward them appropriately. Um, so, you know, that being the case, we couldn't wait till John McGinn had left the building to then start the process of trying to identify somebody to come in and, and take over. Um, so I guess in that sense, it's a little bit similar. Um, and, and if I'm honest, we probably do that with, with a number of people at the club, you know, particularly people who we, we've identified as saying that they are uh, at the top of their game and, and, and potentially um, attractive to other people. Um, but I mean, it's interesting. I don't mind, you know, sharing this one, but Calvin Charlton was able to to use a, a lot of things. And again, some of these are a little bit different, but use some um, some data to actually suggest here are, here are managers. So so at that point where, where Paul had left, here are some managers that we might be interested in because what, what he can see from the data on their teams, they are the type of managers that might actually fit the way we want to play. Attack-minded teams, teams that want to go and, and, and press, um, managers that are pretty adaptable, managers that can actually turn drawing positions into winning positions, etc., etc., um, you know, and interestingly, it pulled out three or four names out of that, that process that we'd never heard of before. Um, so that's not to say at that point that we're suddenly on the phone to an agency and does a guy want a job, but at least it's it's names that you can actually start to research a little bit further and then do your, your due diligence on their character and their background and, you know, maybe some, uh, some outline uh, information about whether they might be interested or whether they'd worked abroad before. Um, you know, an interesting, again, I don't mind sharing this, but one of those names that he pulled out was was a, was a current Barnsley manager. So clearly they'd gone through a, a relatively similar process and, and, and picked the guy that they had they had, uh, they had there. So, you know, so these type of things, I guess, that are really interesting for me, that there is ways that you can you can use um, probably some modern methods to try and get some, uh, some different names in front of you and different things to consider. And I suppose that's really the, the kind of culture that we want to have at Hibs. It's just trying to do things a little bit differently to, to let us think about things. Now, it's not to say, um, as I mentioned, that we would absolutely jump on something like that and say, right, he's our guy because his data suggests that he's done really well in this market. But 
at least it just gives us something different to think about. Sticking on that data theme, and but moving from managers to players, how big a part does data come in to, to signing players and how much of it is a balance between kind of traditional coach, sorry, the traditional scout and then the data that backs up players? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a good question, Joe. And, and I guess, again, that's probably very different for every club. So I remember speaking to the guys at, at Brentford um, not so long ago, um, and one of them actually asked me, you know, how do you feel about the way we scout, which is very much about data. So they're backed with um, Matthew Benham, their owner, who's who's made, you know, his, his fortunes out of uh, generating data to uh, to go into the kind of betting market. You know, and, and I was really honest. I said, if we'd have sat here four or five years ago and said, we are mainly going to recruit players using data and video scouting, we're not going to send many people to games, we're not going to do much live scouting unless it's a follow-up for a specific reason. You know, and that's what, where we think we're going to generate a lot of success. I would have been pretty sceptical, um, but they've done it. You know, in fairness to them, they continually find players within their market, um, you know, buy them in for a small amount of money, sell them for a big amount of money and get teams to compete in the, in the championship. So you can't argue with their model and what they've done. I guess for me, I'm, I'm potentially, and, and maybe partly because we probably don't have the, the backing of such a, a detailed data um, system, if you like, but um, I, I'm a little bit more pragmatic in it. I think scouting can be a number of things. Um, there has been players that we've actually, um, not necessarily brought to the club, but certainly brought to the table, if you like, to try and process a bit further using some data. Um, there's been other players that, that were brought to the table um, to process further based on some video scouting. Um, and then there's obviously a lot that have been brought in through either contacts, um, you know, partner clubs, agents, whatever it might be. And then, uh, you know, lastly, scouts going to games and watching them live. So, so those are probably the four, um, the four elements, I guess, that would make up what, what I would think is important in a recruitment department. Um, and one is not necessarily any more important than the other because we've we brought in, you know, some, some good players that have been a recommendation from an agent. And, and I think that's a big part of it. Um, we've brought in some players that's been guys going to a game and looking at somebody else altogether and, and somebody, you know, just a, a different type of player altogether sticks out. So that's a live scouting aspect. Um, and we've absolutely brought in players where it's been a kind of, you know, a research component of looking at a, a league and saying, right, there's all the players that's out of contract. There's all the ones that's maybe within a certain age bracket. Let's keep filtering, filtering. Let's watch them in wide scout. Let's do a little bit of data work. Finally, let's get somebody out to, to look at them. So, so we have, we've used all of these models and, you know, at the minute, um, we're obviously forced down a completely different road because we can't go and watch people live. So um, it's, it's maybe having as a, a bigger focus on the kind of data aspect and the video scouting aspect at the moment. But, um, but no, they're all relevant and they're all part of it and they're, they're probably all equally as important for me. When it gets round to the transfer window, it usually amps up the nearer the window gets to shutting and then you see, especially on social media, fans going, just sign someone, just sign someone, why aren't we signing anyone? They enter panic mode. So they, they don't really know what goes into signing a player and how uh, onerous it can be. Could you describe what the, what the process is, how long it does take to sign, uh, to sign a player? Obviously, there'll be, there'll be differences, but can I just, in general... No, sure. I mean, it's um, it's a it's a good question, Joel, and, it, and I suppose that the summer periods for me tend to be the, the most stressful. So, and I do joke, but it's probably pretty genuine. You know, the full head of hair when I come into him, and now I'm, I'm going grey and losing a lot of it. So, um, but the summer transfer windows are long, so you know they they can probably start. In an ideal world, you would love to try and get some business done in January. You know, to try and plan that six months ahead to, to have a couple of pre-contracts done. We did that last year, obviously, with Scott Allen, um, and he was able to join in in the first day of pre-season. 
but probably in earnest in, in most years you're, you're looking at what your budget might be for next year you're probably uh, with really earnest from March April time onwards really trying to make some decisions and, and, and flesh out um, you know some deals and I think every club um, would have the same challenges you, you always want players that that are at the right top end of your budget or, or ultimately ones that you probably can't afford that will have uh, a whole number of other suitors. So in that bracket, you can't get those ones done early because they, they want to maybe hedge their bets a little bit. They want to try and explore what other options they might have. Um, and I think that's the thing within any transfer window. It, it's so dynamic that you can plan as much as you like, but ultimately so many things can happen um, to change the direction um, one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Somebody can get injured. Um, somebody can be out of the picture at a club. Suddenly there's an injury within that club and he gets back in and plays. Um, you know, we've had it where people are absolutely adamant they want to leave and then something happens, a manager changes and they suddenly really start enjoying it again and want to stay. Um, so you can have a short list of, you know, three, four, five players per position that, that one by one, um, you need to tick off between between April and, and May or June. Um, so I guess the other, the other I suppose, um, stressful bits of it for me would be that there's always some pressure points. You know, um, the close season can be one. Um, might sometimes maybe driven by season ticket sales. So, you know, a new signing instigates a little bit more interest, gets a little bit more engagement from supporters. So, you know, they can they can maybe come forward and, and buy some season tickets, which helps us to, to plan for the budget. Coming back pre-season is probably another bit of a pressure point where um, supporters want to see some new faces when pre-season starts. Um, sometimes the first friendly game is, is a little bit of a pressure point as well for the same reason. Certainly the first competitive game, which, as you know, in Scotland's now is mid-July, which is which is pretty early with the Betfred Cup. Um, and then the season starting, you know, early to mid-August again. And then, as you say, probably coming into the last week of the window, supporters really want, want to see some faces coming in late at, at that point as well. So, you know, within a recruitment department, you do feel that. You do feel those pressure points coming. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's trying to balance what the squad needs, what the... Um, what the good options are, because you can bring in a guy at the start of pre-season, but sometimes you might think, well, if I'd waited an extra three or four weeks, I might have got somebody different, or I might have got somebody, um, you know, that there was a little bit higher up our list, for example, but then you don't want to let that guy go, because if you don't get the other guy, then uh, you might be left with, uh, you know, going, going even further down your list. So these are all the things that you need to try and balance and manage, I guess. Um, but in terms of the actual process, I mean, the one thing that we've, tried to do pretty regularly is actually just bring people into the facility because we think it's a great selling point. So um, once you get beyond the agent to say, look, you know, we, we would like the player to consider Hibs. Um, we know he's maybe got other options, but can you give us a day of your time to come and see it? And at that point, if somebody says it's not for them or they've got a better offer or they want to go elsewhere, I, I'm relatively relaxed about it. You know, if you don't come to the stadium and the city and the training ground, and feel that, that you could really develop here and progress your career and be happy here. Nobody's going to twist your arm, and, and that's that's something I've been pretty um, you know pretty consistent on. It's it's we genuinely believe in what we do here. We're proud of the club that we're part of. Um, you know we, we we're really proud of the facilities that we've got, and and you know the city that we play in is a huge selling point. And if people don't really buy into that at that point, then you know, we are probably starting to look further down the list at, at that point and, and realising that that individual might just not be right for us. And that's, we've been pretty consistent in that so far. What about the balance, not maybe the balance, the discussions between yourself and George before you and then the manager uh, or the head coach in position at that time? What, how, how does that work? Does, is it a case of 
the manager coming to you to suggest positions? Do they do they suggest names as well? How much input do they have uh, throughout the process? Yeah, I mean, it, it can be again every every head coach and manager is different. Um, I think I've used the example of um, of Ryan Portis. So it's maybe when we speak about you know developing young players. So um, George had a, a kind of board uh, or a, a, a series of boards for different reasons installed at, at HDC, and it was it was actually basic but but good um, because it was it was a really dynamic picture. So you know you would maybe look at who's the, the kind of up and coming younger player that might be still in the academy or the development squad, who's a cover player and who's the starting player in every every position on the pitch. So again, you know, and I've said it, I don't think in any world George Craig and Graham Matthew are going to be able to tell Neil Lennon or any other manager for that for that matter who to sign and what position to, um, you know, to, to go for. Um, but what we were able to do is say, well, look, there is a, is a young player that, that everybody at the club's got pretty high hopes for. Let's actually assess him and see where he is on the journey at that moment in time. And let's also take the remaining budget that we might have to sign players and see where is, where is most appropriate to spend it. So we're not telling Neil Lennon not to sign a centre-back because Ryan Portis is there and could be a cover player. Firstly, we're asking him to assess him. Can he be a cover player in, in his first summer? Um, and that was his first summer that he came from playing so many games about Edinburgh City in League Two. But he was young. So if he can be the fourth-choice centre-back at the club, that's great. You don't really need to recruit anybody else in that position. We had Paul Hanlon, we had Darren McGregor, we had Effie Ambrose. And there was one space, if you like, you know, at the time, Ryan was probably in the kind of development squad um, uh, space. So you're able to move him and say, right, great, he can be a cover central defender. There's four now. You know, David Gray might be able to cover in there. There might be one or two others that can cover if we really need. But there's Ryan and, and, and he's in that space. So now, where, where is it appropriate to spend money uh, on the squad? It's probably um, further up the top end of the pitch. So, so that's how that kind of planning uh, process works, I guess. And, you know, Jack, Jack does that um, you know, to be honest, he's come to, to, to me with these things. So look, you know, here's the, the young players that, that we really quite like. Here's the areas that um, we want to prioritise because we, we don't necessarily see young players ready to kind of step in and play. Here's who we, we would like to um, improve the team. And, and here's, um, you know, and ultimately, I suppose, in terms of that structural conversation we had earlier, the more young players that we can get initially filling um, squad positions or, uh, or, or cover positions, the better. Um, because that's how you actually get them in and about the squad and, and hopefully ready to go and transition into the team. So so that becomes part of the whole planning process and Jack's Jack's been good at that. John Potter's been at a number of the under eighteen games and, and you know both of them have watched a number of the kind of development squad games when they take place as well. So so they know coming into the next season what young players that they, they want from day one to be part of the group and what ones underneath that might be um might be uh, next in line, I guess. So um, but no, the conversation has been a bit of everything. So sometimes Jack and, and John, in this case, will say there's certain players that we really want to um, to consider. Um, here's how much we think we can get them for. Here's the positions that we want. And then I guess you know it would be the recruitment department to then say, well, look, here are other players to consider in those areas, similar budgets, um, similar types. And, and again, ultimately, Jack um, will, will pick the players that he wants to sign and bring into the club. You know, and, and that's been the case with every manager, really. This might be the million-dollar question that nobody knows, but with your background in player uh, identification and now in sport director, how do you see recruitment evolving? Yeah, as a, a million-dollar question, I think I think the well, this this pandemic has probably allowed us a chance to think about how we do a lot of things, um, and a lot of clubs will be similar. So I, I've I've already mentioned it. So you know, we've got a guy, um, Mike Meek, and a senior scout who, um, yeah. 
unbelievably doesn't drive a car, but still manages to get to over 200 games a year. Um, <laughs> so, so he's had to, um, you know, clearly he can't do uh, the job the way he wants to at this moment in time because there isn't any games to attend. Um, so he's spent more, far more time behind a laptop than he ever has done in his life. Um, so I guess that, that there might be a little bit more, um, you know, video scouting and data scouting. I've been inundated with um, products to consider, you know, so many new products on the market um, that people think can try and help uh, give clubs an advantage to try and recruit players. So so I guess um, that is a million dollar question, Joel. Nobody knows probably exactly what it's going to look like, but certainly in, in scouting, recruitment and a number of other areas, this, this pause, if you like, is giving everybody a chance to really think and consider what they do um, and I've no doubt that when we get back together the way we work will be different to what it was before um, and that's that's probably just because we've had the time to um, to think about it but definitely because we've actually had to do things differently in the meantime because we just couldn't physically do what we've been doing up till now. Yeah because I spoke with you earlier on this year not long after the, the shutdown and you did mention that there's some within the club who have been able to do projects or look at stuff that they've not had the time to do previously so how how is your how has your role changed during the, the the current climate what's it basically entailed now that you have basically i think just uh, at home but still having to touch base with various different departments yeah um there's probably loads in this one joe for me you know, i'm actually the only kind of member of the football department that isn't followed at the minute so you know aside from doing a lot of day-to-day tasks when things are getting sort of channeled through me i've really tried to um, to try and keep people together, I think that that's been the most important aspect because it's quite a lonely time, and I think everybody's starting to really feel that now as we get towards you know the kind of eighth, ninth week of, of a lockdown. Um, so it's trying to trying to be pretty deliberate about keeping people together. Um, I mean, I, I don't mind mentioning this one, and it, and it bombs spectacularly, but we, we did try. We've tried on a kind of Friday to have a social time. So the first week with a quiz, which was quite well attended, with another couple of them. And we thought we'd be really ambitious, which was to get people into small groups and have a Hibs Got Talent competition. So for probably two or three days afterwards, I was processing quite a few resignation letters from staff and, and, and quite a few free transfer requests from players. So <laughs> disappointingly, it, it, it was all dreamed up with Martin Boyle in mind because we thought if, if anybody's going to actually embrace this and take it forward, Martin Boyle's a guy that you're going to see doing a TikTok and, and singing a song. And he was the first one to put his hands in and say, this is, I, I'm not happy with this, I'm not doing it. Um, but even just silly things like that was actually really good because what it did was get people talking. You know, not not a huge number actually took part in the event. Let me tell you, and the footage of that day will be destroyed and never seen again. Those <laughs> that didn't, there was just a general sort of, you know, a bit of banter about it, a bit of chat, people coming together, people probably feeling a little bit out of their comfort zone, which which wasn't a bad thing. Um, you know, as I say, those that took part had a, had a bit of a laugh. But, but, you know, aside from that, it's been things like... Um, you know, the, the academy's been, been a pretty big focus. So um, I, I unashamedly stole an idea from uh, from Man United who had people doing question answers for their academy kids. So we've, we've been able to manage that on a weekly basis, you know, and put a couple out there. So Marvin Bartley did one uh, with the academy kids, which was a brilliant story, you know, playing amateur football at 18 years old and then being able to go and play in the English Championship. And I'm sorry to mention it on the anniversary day for you, Joe, and I know this is a hard one for you, but, you know, a, a guy that went to win the Scottish Cup with, with Hibs in, in 2016, you know, but even, and, and Judy Murray mentioned about, um, you know, even just as a parent of, of two, um, you know, world-class athletes and, and ultimately a, a parent of, of two young people who were really interested in sport and actually had an opportunity to develop it. So the parents were asking us some brilliant questions and some of the, the, the stuff that's come out of that, again, has really challenged mm. their thinking. Um, you know, and, and I don't know whether this is something that you had planned to, to go into, but I've spoken about it quite a bit recently that, 
you know, this is a real passion, a real interest of mine is this idea of, of youth development and, um, you know, probably looking into academy structures and, and how we might um, really challenge them. Um, and, and that's given me a great opportunity to do that. And even just bringing in some of these people to, to speak to the kids in the academy and speak to the parents, it's hopefully starting to change a little bit of the language that we use around the academy. Some of the things that we up until now have probably thought are really important. Um, and actually just understanding that what we're talking about here is developing young people, you know, and, 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 and actually just letting kids play football. That's what it is. Um, you know, and, and, and if I'm honest, I think some of the language, probably particularly in Scotland, has got a little bit too much about, you know, developing players and, and, and talking about them as if they're many professionals all the way through when it's far from it. Um, and, and it's probably allowed me a wee bit of a chance to try and, revisit some conversations and say right what might we want our academy to look like once we get back together again because you know the way things are looking at the minute that might not be for some time um so you know and engaging with some of these things the question answers etc has been good and, and again we've, i've had loads of staff coming and saying listen you know i, I realize i'm furloughed i can't actually do any work but i've, I've attended this webinar I've, I've gone on this you know podcast and listened to such and such this is really interesting what do you think about this and you know, some of these kind of organic conversations have really allowed us to focus in and, and, and think about what life might be like once you get back together, which has been good. Because you don't get these opportunities when you're in the throes of a season. You're just too busy carrying out your job and doing the, the daily tasks that, that are required. So, um, yeah, I mean, clearly it's been a, a tragic situation for so many people. So I, I don't want to um, talk about this period of time being anything other than what it is. But within our world of football, within our world of Hibs, it's certainly allowed us a bit of a of a time to kind of reflect on things and, and, and I know that that's, that's challenged a lot of people to, to think about what they do and maybe do things a bit differently, which has been good. Yeah, I'm going to come on to the academy side of things in, uh, in, a, in a second. Kind of one final question just around first team recruitment is looking towards the, the summer, how do you see the, the, the transfer market oper- operating? I think it's just going to be completely different playing field to previous seasons. Yeah, I think so. And, 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 you know, one of the biggest challenges, I think, Joel, generally here is, is the lack of um, clarity on so many things. Um, and I think as I said to you, you know, this is a period where nobody has any experience in. So you can't turn to anybody else in the club who says, well, we had a similar experience at this club eight years ago or whatever. There's nobody that's got any experience in, in this world that we're in now. Um, so it's even things like, you know, at the moment, nobody knows when their league's going to start back. But you know, for example, if the English leagues, the Championship or League One, for example, decide to finish and they finish after July um, or into July, what does that mean for a player who might be wanting to leave an English club to come and join a Scottish club? You know, we could in theory sign them at this moment in time on the 1st of July, but they might still be contracted to the club in England to go and finish a season. Now, July might be a really conservative estimate. It might be into August before some of these leagues finish, if, if in fact they can actually get around to doing it. So, so that's why there's so much uncertainty. And I know that there's a lot of the contracts for players up here finish next week, you know, finish at the end of May. So um, what, what does a player do? Ultimately, I, I would imagine at whatever point a club says to him, look, there's a contract there uh, and there's an offer that he, that he thinks is reasonable, he's probably going to sign it. Um, but again, a lot of clubs are now saying, well, when, when's football going to start? Are we going to sign a player in June and football might not start back? And it probably will start back behind closed doors. It might not be till August or September. You know, that's that's a few months to pay somebody um, a wage when, when you know that they can't actually perform for you and, and do the job that you're employing them to do. So there are so many um, there are so many big questions at the minute. So, um, 
yeah, I mean, I guess from our point of view, what we can do is plan. What we can do is continue to have conversations with players and agents and let them know that we're interested in them and we want to try and as soon as we as soon as we're uh, we're able, be in a position where we can make them offer more bring them into the club. Um, and I guess that this year's probably. Um, you know, you talk about the things that are important in recruitment. What we wanted to do last year was actually try and create a bit of consistency around about our playing group. Um, so, you know, for the first day of pre-season, whenever that may be, we've got 22 um, signed players that we think will be part of that, that core first-team group. So, you know, in theory, um, if all of them want to stay and continue with us next year, then we don't necessarily need to recruit a big number of players, um, which I think is helpful. Um, but as you know, that can change as well. So there's still so many things you're trying to plan for. But no, the, the uncertainties that definitely make it difficult, um, not only for us, but for every club, I would imagine. Um, and I, I don't see many clubs announcing new signings at this moment in time. So it's uh, hopefully we can get some clarity on that in the near future and, and, and life gets back to some form of normality and football follows suit um, pretty quickly thereafter, I think. Podcast Network.